Before we jump into today's episode, I want everyone to know that the Eddie Adams Workshop has extended its deadline to June 5th. That's because we have a special live panel lined up for May 30th, next Tuesday, where they're going to be able to give feedback and tips and tricks for you to make those final adjustments before the deadline so you can be part of that special 100 group that attends the workshop this October. So mark your calendars, check out the social media pages to see how to register your seat for that live seminar next Tuesday, and we will see you there. Welcome back to the Long Roll Podcast. I'm your host, Griff, your resident Air Force photographer, national marketing uh, for the Air Force and Space Force, and the social media manager to the Eddie Adams Workshop. Today, we have an incredible guest. And when I went diving a little bit deeper, I found some pretty incredible achievements that they had, not only in their professional career, but also their personal career that I felt was important to showcase to the rest of the community. They have a PhD in geology. A PhD alone blows my mind, and, and the dedication that they have to achieve that is astounding, and it definitely inspires me. They've done underwater dives in Florida, they've been to Africa, they've been to the glaciers in Alaska and the Arctic. It's astounding the achievements and the adventures that this individual's been on. Just the other night, I was sitting on my couch watching a Red Bull documentary where this individual was diving into actual glaciers to see how they were formed and what was happening within them. To me, I was just nervous watching it from the couch. I could only imagine doing it there in person or just watching. Uh, it's astounding and it's something definitely you need to check out for yourself. I also found out that they were an army medic at one point in time and that's pretty incredible and there's a lot of stuff to unpack there. But I won't hold you up anymore. I'll go ahead and stop rambling. And let's go ahead and introduce Jason Goley. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. And again, thank you for being patient with me trying to set this up and, and put this all together. Uh, but again, like looking at a lot of your achievements and things you've done with your career, uh, I guess my first thing with all this being about photography is how uh, what got you into photography? What got you passionate about the craft? Yeah, I originally got into photography in high school with the goal of being able to hook an SLR up to my telescope and take pictures of the moon. And my mom at the time was super worried that I was going to get the SLR and get super bored with it and then never take any pictures of the moon and then have this very <laughs> expensive paperweight. <laughs> um, so but she eventually relented and, and got me some books on like how to take photos. Um, you know, the one that I used the most was one that Art Wolf uh, wrote with uh, Martha Hill, I think it's Martha Hill, uh, called The uh, Art of Photographing Wildlife. And it was neat because it would show like his perspective as a photographer and like all the technical details of how he made images. And then it would show the editor's perspective of why she likes some images better than others. And in the end, I actually never ended up hooking up the, uh, my camera to my telescope. I just ended <laughs> up taking pictures of everything else. So is there anyone in your family, like outside of just your interest that uh, dabbled in photography or you have any friends or peers that got into it, or is this something that you sort of just picked up on your own? Yeah, it's something I mostly just kind of picked up on my own. Um, you know, I'm largely self-taught. Um, you know, I started, you know, back in the film days, my first camera was a Pentax K1000. It got stolen on a trip to Mexico right after high school. Wow. And then I got my first 
uh, kind of autofocus camera. I moved into the Nikon system of cameras after that and kind of still shooting Nikons today. But Oh, awesome. And so you go from high school in the photography and then what I know we talked a little bit before, like outside of this is uh, the army and being a medic. So how did that come across your path? So I, uh, I didn't have a whole lot of direction. You know, I was really into punk rock and fiction <laughs> in high school. And, uh, you know, in the end, I kind of graduated without much of a plan. I was tossing bags at the Cincinnati airport and trying to figure out how I was going to pay for college. And one of the guys that I was tossing bags with is like, hey, man, I'm in the National Guard. If you join the National Guard, they'll pay for college. I was like, really? So, you know, I drove to an armory the next day. I chatted with a recruiter. I was like, do you guys really pay for college? And he's like, yeah. I was like, can I see it written down somewhere? And he, you know, shows me. It's like on all the walls. Every <laughs> right. posters. Yeah. I was like, cool. I want to be a medic, you know? So I took the, um, you know, the ASVAB test and went to MEPS and got all my physical stuff done. And then a very short period of time later, I was at Fort Sill, Oklahoma going, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> Is medic uh, something you wanted to do or is it just... You're like, throw me in anything and I'll adapt and make the best of it. Uh, no, I mean, I, I chose to be a medic. Um, you know, okay. I think, you know, for me, I, I was uh, yeah, I was a Boy Scout and, you know, was really interested in wilderness survival and first aid and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I think if I'd actually spent more time talking to the recruiter, I just didn't really trust him all that much. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want him to talk me into something else. But I think if I had learned about a lot of the other jobs and stuff that were available, I, I may or may not have ended up being a medic. I mean, honestly, being in the military myself, uh, that field, I think regardless the branch of service that you're in, uh, the medical or health professions field is one of the best, uh, most rewarding. And then especially I would say for like the Army, uh, as, mu as much as the military you're in, you're still sort of humanized because you're there to take care of people and treat people. And I know outside of things, whether you could be an infantry or are grunt in the fields where maybe you're not necessarily going to be treated uh, as such in comparison. But uh, did were you able to go on any like unique exercises or any was there anything in that experience like as a medic that sort of stands out to you um, like maybe a positive impression or someone who uh, maybe even pointed you in the direction to what you do now. Yeah, I got to work in a, a couple of different units. So, you know, I was, in, I was in the National Guard. And I think one of the things that's really unique about the National Guard is everybody in the unit has, you know, their military job, and then they've got this other job in the civilian world. So you get this, like, melting pot of backgrounds, like professional yeah. backgrounds, um, and even, you know, a melting pot of different service backgrounds. So, you know, I started in an armor unit, um, you know, which was super neat. And then I went to a forward support hospital. And then right at the end of my service, I was attached to a long range surveillance detachment. And it was super neat just seeing people from all these different backgrounds, particularly in, in the last unit that I was in, because um, that unit had um, uh, jump slots. So you would have a lot of people that were, you know, in jump units that wanted to retire. So we had people from the Navy, we had people from the Air Force, we had people from the Army and the Marines, you know, all in the same unit, things that you'd probably never really get. Um, on the active duty side. Yeah, and definitely. I've always been uh, jealous, but at the same time, I admire uh, anyone in the Guard or Reserves to be able to uh, put on the uniform and take it off and, and live a normal life. And uh, to where, for me, like as someone in active duty, um, sort of under this umbrella and conditioned for um, just the day in day outside of the military expectations to where we didn't we don't necessarily have the same kind of flexibility but at the same time when it comes time for us to step away 
we, we don't, I think, we're not as mentally resilient and strong to be able to adapt uh, to uh, depending on ourselves and not necessarily the government when we step away. So for someone to do that day one consistently, but be able to also, again, take on the, turn on, put on the uniform and, and serve the country. Um, again, it's, uh, I admire something like that because I know it, um, picturing it myself, I, it would be a challenge. Uh, I probably would have failed earlier on if I didn't have that uh, hand guidance from the supervisor I had to keep me accountable to where I couldn't go anywhere because I signed that contract. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so you go, uh, so for geology, um, and did you start pursuing that like while you were in the army or is that something, uh, when your time was done and you decided to move on from that, uh, is that something that you started after or where, where did that sort of start peeking into your life? Yeah, it was kind of simultaneously because I was in the guard, you know, I only had about six months worth of active duty military training. And then it was, um, you know, one weekend a month, a couple weeks a year in the summer. Um, you know, I uh, finished my service in the end of 2002. So I didn't deploy. Um, so I didn't have that um, interruption. So, you know, I was able to go to college and, and be in the military at the same time. And when I first went to college, you know, the intention was I really enjoyed being a combat medic. And the intent, the intention was to go to medical school. So I started out pre-med, but my next door neighbors were geology graduate students. And, you know, being the first person in my family to go to university, I didn't even know what a graduate student was, but they had amazing parties. They had beer that I'd never heard of. <laughs> the first time I'd seen microbrew and they were all going to these amazing places. You know, I remember one guy, he was talking about flying around in a helicopter in the Brooks Range in Alaska, you know, mapping wow. in the summer. And like other people were coming back from places like Kazakhstan or India. It just sounded super exotic. And I was like, how can you guys afford to do this? You know, it's like, yeah. I can barely afford college. Like, oh, we're graduate students. Like, it's all paid for. And I was like, I want to do that. Um, and that's kind of how I got sidetracked in, into geology. And so uh, did, you, did you make any lifelong friends or was there any specific mentors uh, that you had then or that you even still have now um, that led you down to where uh, all these projects you've been working on or maybe that you're continuing to work on that lead it to these opportunities? Yeah, you know, I think it's like probably the same for any field, uh, you know, mm -hmm. very early on when I decided that I wanted to get into geology, uh, there was a professor, Daryl Granger at Purdue, who, you know, brought me into his lab and taught me everything that he knew about studying caves, which was something that I was really passionate about. You know, when you look back in, in history, you know, two, three hundred years ago, if you wanted to do science, like science and exploration were were married. And like, yeah. all you had to do was get on a boat and go somewhere that Europeans had never been before and write down everything that you saw. And that was science. And it was amazing. And it was exciting. Well, it's getting a little bit harder to do that anymore. But, you know, caves, you know, in glaciers or in rocks or particularly underwater are places that we still know relatively little about. They're not something that we can see with a satellite. They're very difficult to sense and study any other way other than going in and directly exploring them. So that was kind of the hook for me. So Daryl was probably the first person that really set me in the direction of geology. And then from a photography standpoint, you know, when I graduated high school and had got out of active duty military training, I got a job at my local community weekly, you know, Circulation 5000. It was me and the editor-in-chief. And I worked there full-time for the better part of a year. And I learned everything in the world that I needed to know to be a successful scientist, photographer, and reporter from working with that guy, you know, 
it, I had no qualifications for that job other than showing up and applying for it, um, you know, and, and being super passionate about shooting photos and, and telling news stories. So um, I guess no, I, I, I learned how to... A, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I know. I feel like that's one of the biggest keys to life is just sometimes just showing up, showing up in the willingness <laughs> to, to want to be a participant, you know, not stand on the sideline and, and then just hoping that, you know, the person above takes the time to give you some tools to help you be successful and they see you know, your worth again. And and I know um, it's throughout the years, too, we come across so many people. And I think there's something special about the person that just wants to show up and and that they're there because a lot of times, you know, everyone has so many different things going on in their lives where consistency is never guaranteed. And, and having that one individual that that is there, it's it's something special. So uh, that's really cool that you're able to pull away so much from uh, something like that. And then going to the caves, back to the caves, what I know uh, you shared the interest about it, not necessarily, not necessarily being as explored, um, but what else specifically about pursuing like the glaciers and the caves of, that really gets you excited to keep doing it again and again, and two, going into scarier and scarier places <laughs> to, to bring more information and share it with the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of things, it was just kind of an accident. You know, I never really, you know, I, I didn't have much of a plan. When people talk about like all the things that I've done, if they say it like really quickly, um, it sounds maybe like way more impressive than if you watched it unfold in real time. Uh, where, you know, it's just really more like a slow motion disaster where every once in a while something could work out. And I'd be like, oh, this is really cool. We should keep going with this. And, you know, that's kind of how things went with Glacier Caves. You know, I it took me almost 10 years to finish undergrad. I kept dropping out of school to go on cool caving expeditions or um, just didn't have money or interest. And, you know, it was really hard for me to focus on things that I didn't want to do. And I went on a rock climbing trip with a glaciologist from Scotland who uh, we had a mutual friend and he was studying these lakes that form in and around Mount Everest on glaciers as a result of climate change. And they drain really quickly and catastrophically through caves uh, and can flood villages downstream, but nobody really wow. understood how those caves formed. So after we got done rock climbing, I, I took him to a limestone cave nearby and I showed him like all the things that, you know, geologists who study caves, you know, can infer about how those caves form by mapping them and, and paying close attention to the shapes of the passages. And I was like, look, I don't think anybody's done this in glaciers, but if we can do this in glaciers, I guarantee we can figure out how the caves formed. And the way that Doug Ben, the glaciologist that I work with, always describes this is he's like, at the time that Jason and I started working together, the only thing that I knew about glaciers was, or no, I totally messed that one up. Um, anyway, D Doug always says the only thing that, you know, he knew about caves is that they were dark. And the only thing that I knew about glaciers is that they were cold. And that's literally <laughs> where we started. So, you know, he, I had an expedition caving background and he had a, a background in glaciology and mountain climbing. And together we were able to kind of marry those backgrounds and safely explore caves kind of in and around Mount Everest without, without getting killed so and so it's uh from the from the documentary that I was watching last night uh again insane uh and to go through the training and if you can share with some people a little bit about that uh because I know the documentary does it fairly well but um to go into a unique scenario to where you're going to go into the Arctic and freezing waters uh you know you have to train essentially in warm waters you know, in, in Florida. And um, 
and your experience and being in both, like how necessary is it to have that kind of comfortability with the gear to put yourself in an environment to where, again, when y'all were in the, when the frozen water and, and everything else, I was like, man, I was just cold myself. So, but again, the training and the time and dedication, can you share a little bit about that to get to the point where you can go do the, the glacier stuff? Yeah. So I, you know, for, for photography and for research, a lot of the work that I do is kind of built around having um, some super refined technical skills that let me work in underwater caves or, you know, really, really deep, you know, vertical caves or glacier caves with lots of ropes and and, and other things. I first started cave diving in, in the late 1990s. So I've got, you know, more than 20 years of experience kind of working in those kinds of environments. Um, I, I'm an instructor for a lot of those courses now. Um, so one of the things that you know, we're doing on that project was I, I teamed up with Will Gadd, who's one of the world's top ice climbers, and he wanted to um, wanted to. I think one of the things that has really driven Will is, is is competitions and like you know being one of the best ice climbers in the world. And now as he's you know I think he's in his fifties and he's not slowing down. I mean the guy is a machine. Uh, but, you know, he's like, what, what else can I do? And one of the things that he's seen over the last 50 years is a like elite winter athlete is that his entire world is changing. You know, there are ice climbs that people just don't get to do anymore because there's no ice. And he's just wanted to shed attention on that. So he uh, got in touch with me and he's like, hey, I know you've been doing this really cool glacier cave research. Uh, maybe we could do something neat together. So I had been wanting to explore and study and photograph caves inside the Greenland ice sheet for 10 years, but nobody would fund us to do it from a science perspective because they thought it was crazy. So, but you know, Red Bull's like, yeah, sure, we'll do it. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, so it was awesome. You know, it was a super unique opportunity. Um, you know, Will and I went in there, all the stuff that we found was brand new to science. We were able to document it, put together a cool little show. It runs for about 16 minutes that um, talks about the expedition. And then we wrote a series of research papers about it as well. So, so have you seen really... anything uh, beneficial come from that um, since you've been down there and you've brought all this information back for the rest of the world to learn from? Have you seen anything come from that at all? Or is this something that's still in the works where a lot of people are still uh, going to be applying this for a while? It's not necessarily something that can be so tangible so quickly. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, with most science advances, it's all super incremental. But I think the biggest thing that I got from, or the biggest change that resulted from that Red Bull film project was probably my career. It was really the first time I was, you know, that same year I ended up working with a couple of National Geographic shows, uh, also in Greenland. And, you know, it was the first time I was working around a lot of, you know, big media productions, mm -hmm. a lot of film stuff. And then George Steinmetz came in and photographed some of my research on the Greenland ice sheet. And one of the things that I, I noticed looking around was that like all the pro photographers were also taking bad photos and like that was a real <laughs> revelation for me I was like wow like not every photo that these guys take is amazing mm -hmm. and you know I got to learn a little bit more about the industry from them and it just kind of planted a seed and you know some interest in um, Christian Pondella is a um, kind of action sports photographer he was looking at some of my glacier cave photos he's like you should set up an Instagram account and I laughed I'm like why would I do that I'm not 12 um, and, but I did. And, yeah. you know, and then what really happened for me was uh, COVID um, burned all of my international research to the ground. You know, I had, you know, spent six to eight months a year traveling around the world, studying 
environmental problems. And then all of a sudden I couldn't do anything. Like I watched literally like mm -hmm. my entire career go up and smoke. Like a lot of people did. You know, I sat on the couch, I was super depressed. And I was like, does it, and later I was like, does it even matter? I was like, you know, I, I've worked really hard for more than 10 years on all this mm -hmm. stuff, but like, has it changed anything? I was like, as scientists, we know more about how humans have messed up the planet than any other point in time in history, but fewer people seem to understand or care about it. So for me, I was like, well, you know, I've got this background in journalism. You know, I worked for a newspaper like a bazillion years ago. I have an Instagram account now. Uh, so maybe I can just start shooting some local stories that I know quite a lot about and share how I've seen the world change as a scientist. And that was kind of how I started. Yeah. That's really cool. Uh, I mean, to connect from potentially taking pictures of the moon to taking pictures that essentially uh, things that are important to you, but also important to the rest of the world. And like you said, you know, we, we do a lot of damage to it. We don't necessarily take the best care of it, but I, from you just starting out with one specific passion and leading into something greater and be able to apply the same kind of tools. Again, I hope spread so much information and inspiration to the rest of us that uh, without it, like we wouldn't be here today. Uh, again, looking at, uh, again, the amazing Red Bull documentary, um, the, and then even the piece that you had con contributed to National Geographic with the Manatees. Uh, and you please correct me if I'm saying that wrong. Um, but uh, can you share a little bit about that and how uh, you started that project and if you're even taking it other places uh, and expanding on it? Yeah, so um, first I want to um, just say I co-shot that that story with Erica Larson, um, who's worked mm -hmm. a lot with the Eddie Adams Workshop and is, is really how I got involved in that story to begin with. Um, and it was written by uh, Gina Stevens, amazing. We all got to work together a lot on that project and uh, we're still working together on stuff today. So. Um, manatees for me, um, I was actually never interested in manatees as a subject. Uh, you know, I live in Florida and, you know, there are manatees everywhere. It's a big, you know, cultural symbol here in Florida. Mm -hmm. I had spent most of my initial foray into like, Hey, I actually really want to try to do something big in, in photography with, you know, environmental subjects working on Florida Springs. So Florida has over a thousand freshwater springs collectively. They discharge billions of gallons of freshwater to the surface every day. And because, there are 900 people that are moving to Florida every day, um, and there's an explosion of agriculture in the state. A lot of those springs are, are drying up or becoming choked with um, oh, wow. uh, algae from nutrient pollution. And, you know, for me, it was a, a neat subject. I do a lot of cave diving. So a lot of times I just photograph uh, on the sides of neat, you know, cave diving trips that I was doing anyway. And, you know, I knew that you know, manatees spend the winter in springs in Florida, and there's this real important connection between manatees and springs. Um, but like every picture I'd ever seen of a manatee looked exactly the same. It's kind mm -hmm. of that postcard image of a smiling manatee, yeah. clear water with a sunburst in the background. And I was like, it's just, I don't know, snorkeling around like all day and taking pictures of like fat animals that are boring just doesn't really <laughs> seem very exciting to me. So I was like, but all right, I'm going to go, I'm going to spend one day, I'm going to get my manatee in a spring photo, and then I'm going to go back to doing like deep, you know, rebreather cave dives or whatever. And I went to a spring and I hopped in the water and I saw manatees doing stuff that I had never seen people take photos of before. Um, like I saw manatees playing together. I saw, you know, manatees, they were super curious. Um, they remind, reminded me of my dogs. They would um, they have these little flippers and they can walk on the bottom with their flippers. Oh, and this wow. one manatee, younger manatee, he'd run up, stop maybe like 20 feet away from me, stare at me a little bit and turn around and run back. 
And then a couple <laughs> minutes later, he'd run just a little bit closer, stop, check me out, and then run back. And eventually, you know, he's just like running like right up to me and nuzzling, you know, my, my underwater camera equipment. And I was like, man, these are amazing. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. Yeah. Like, so, so I canceled all my plans for the rest of the week and um, <laughs> decided to start trying to photograph like all of these different types of behaviors and 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 share them with people because you know I think manatees are typically cast as these kind of like lazy sedentary animals you know a lot of people are like oh manatees sleep half the day and and eat the rest of the day they're my spirit animal uh, but what <laughs> really what really captured my attention is just how majestic and graceful they are underwater and that was what I really wanted to be able to show so that kind of set me on on the path of, of working on a long-term project about manatees as well. Uh, about two months later, right after I'd started that, uh, Florida started experiencing a record manatee die-off. So over in Indian River Lagoon, um, manatees started dying by the hundreds. And um, after a little bit of research, so one of the things that happens in Florida anytime a manatee dies because they're they're no longer endangered, um, but they're uh, very, very close to endangered. So there's this whole... Uh, research effort that's involved in trying to understand what happens anytime manatees die. So they're biologists, they go out, they examine the corpses and try to figure out what the cause of death is. Because if you want to protect an animal, uh, you have to understand what they're dying from. And what they found was that they these manatees in Indian River Lagoon were starving to death. The There has been an explosion of development in and around the 156 mile long Indian River Lagoon that's flooded it with excess nutrients from sewage, uh, and lawn fertilizers. That's triggered an explosion of algae that smothered all of the seagrasses that manatees eat. So in winter, manatees will come in. There's some warm water areas that they spend winter in around the, the lagoons. Manatees look fat, but they actually have surprisingly little body fat. They can't survive in water colder than 68 degrees Fahrenheit. So they come into these warm water sites, but they also need a lot of food to eat. Well, that winter, there had been so much uh, pollution and so much seagrass loss that the manatees had the warm water, but they didn't have anything to eat and they started starving to death. Um, so for me, you know, when I realized that was happening and at the time it wasn't in the media at all, um, I was like, why, well, you know, I live in Florida, uh, my career has been torched to the ground by COVID. Uh, so I'm just going to go over and start photographing it. And, you know, for me, it was the first time that I had started working on a project where I was like, all right, I'm going to drive across the state and I'm going to spend a bunch of money photographing dead decomposing manatees. Like this isn't something that I'm doing for fun, uh, like on the side of something that I'm already doing. So um, that was kind of what really set me down the path of being like, you know, there's um, you know, some really important environmental stories that are out there that just don't get a lot of attention because most of the smaller newspapers don't have photographers anymore. And, you know, the environmental desk is the next desk to go. So, um, so what about that had such a resonating uh, factor with you to where you felt the need to, like you said, drive across the state and dedicate not just so much of your time, but so much of your money to communicate something like this? Uh, what tri what triggered that for you? Well, Florida's Florida's been you know, experiencing a, a series of slow motion environmental disasters since people started moving here. And I think it's really easy, you know, because a lot of times it happens just kind of slowly and progressively. And then later you look back, it's like, oh my gosh, what have we lost? And, you know, I think this time when you have, you know, an animal that so many people around the world love and and they're dying as a direct result of, of development, um, you know, it's, it's an opportunity to try to show people. I was like, Hey, you know, it's like, this is, 
this is kind of an inflection point, right? Like if we can't get people to care uh, about manatees dying in mass in Indian River Lagoon, we probably have no hope of getting anybody to care about anything. Um, I mean, that said, the other thing that I think is really important to you know put the die off in context is that 60 years ago, you know, when manatees were one of the first animals that were protected by the Endangered Species Act, there were only, you know, a couple hundred manatees that we knew about in Florida at the time, you know, so like now, since, you know, the beginning of 2021, we've had 2000 manatee fatalities, that's awful, right? It's a tragedy, right? But it's also very important to recognize that it wasn't that long ago that there weren't 2000 manatees in the state to die. So, you know, you have this tremendous success story. You have animals that were brought back from the brink of extinction and their populations have been building systematically until recently. Um, so, you know, if, I, I think it's very easy for environmental stories to get focused on all of the negative things that are happening. And I think one of the things that I was really excited to get the work on with Erica and Gina with the National Geographic story was this balance, right? It's like, there's this awful thing that's happening right now on Florida's East Coast, but let's just take a step back and look at how far we've come. And hopefully that can inspire people to be like, you know, manatees were almost gone once before, like we can rally together, we've done it before. Like let's, you know, build off of that and try to fix the problems that we've created, you know, now. So, and you went in and like, and as a storyteller uh, and a visual artist, um, I know you wanted to, to show you wanted to show this uh, to the to an audience, but and when you're walking in there with the mindset you had, uh, who was your direct audience that you wanted to showcase this to, and uh, did that shape the kinds of photos or the way that you approach the photo taking uh, and going to do those things? Yeah, like I said, at the time I was mostly photographing for my Instagram account, but I was also. Um, at that, that time was when I was starting to pitch stories um, as well. So um, I think at that point in time, I had pitched a story about manatees to National Geographic through a connection that I'd made working on projects with the National Geographic Society. Um, so I, I've been funded by the society on the science side to work on um, you know, science and expeditions. And my photos from you know Nepal and other places had made it over to the magazine side, and I got invited to be a contributor for their adventure Instagram account. You know, which for me was like, oh, it's awesome. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know, so it's like lots of people will get to see my photos now. So that was kind of like my first, uh, first you know, connection and what I considered to be like a big break. You know, as big of a break as photographing for Instagram can be. Um, but, uh, um. But yeah, so initially, I mean, I, I didn't really have a plan for what I was okay. doing. It was just like, there's this, there's this, you know, thing that's happening over on the East Coast. Manatees are dying. Nobody's covering it. Somebody should cover it. Mm -hmm. And so I just started covering it. And, you know, it's kind of like the, you know, the field of dreams, like if you build it, they will come. Type yeah. thing. Unfortunately, so, it seems like yeah, there has been a lot of attention that you've drawn to that. And, um, and what impact have you seen since you started that till up till now and probably even more that you're working on toward the future like you said the the three of y'all are still working together to produce and do more um have you seen i guess that is a question have you seen any changes or significant impact that uh clean up the pollution um or the runoff or anything like that to help sustain the life of the manatees yeah so you know there's been a i think one of the really important things that photojournalists can do is, is visually show 
problems that people need to address. You know, it's a way of getting people to, you know, everybody loves photographs. You know, it's a way of getting people to connect with something. And I think, you know, what we were able to do and other people who've been been working on, on these types of problems in Florida have been able to do um, is, is get people to connect and, and care about them. And that's kind of the first of many, many steps. And so there's an effort that's underway to restore Indian River Lagoon. There's a lot of seagrass restoration projects that are going in now. There's been a very successful seagrass restoration project on Florida's West Coast um, in Crystal River that I always use an example of like, hey, all these things that happened over in Indian River Lagoon, they've happened before in Crystal River. And this is a small community. You know, they had like, like wastewater treatment facility that was dumping sewage into into their lagoon into their estuary it killed all their seagrass the community's like actually we don't like living next to an underwater desert so they came together and figured out how to clean up the pollution and they replanted all the seagrasses and like there the visibility improved you know the manatee populations have exploded there's fish in the water again like every year i go diving there it's one of the few places in the world um, or at least one of the few places in Florida where I go diving where it's actually better than it was a couple of years ago. Most every place I go, it's like it just seems to be getting a little bit worse over time. And I was like, you know, this place over here in Crystal River is like a model for how we can fix Indian River Lagoon. We just have to upscale it. And, um, you know, people are starting to do that. And have you seen, uh, and that's incredible, have you seen ways to expand this outside of Florida? Or has there been organizations or potential people reaching out uh, to help try to solve a similar kind of problem, not necessarily with manatees, but water pollution or runoff um, that may have seen um, what, what's been put out there from you and, and everyone else? Yeah, so there's been an explosion of interest in seagrass restoration, probably not because of, of what we did, but, um, you know, just kind of in, in, in general, you know, if we think about a lot of aquatic ecosystems, you know, the, the seagrass is kind of the foundation of a healthy aquatic ecosystem in the same way that trees are the foundation of a healthy forest ecosystem. If you lose all of the trees, you just, you don't have a forest ecosystem anymore. It's kind of the same thing with the seagrasses. So in a lot of places where you've had uh, excessive pollution that's wiped out the seagrasses. There's been a lot of attention directed towards trying to figure out how to bring those seagrasses back. And so, and so, and going back to something that uh, you said and sort of let off a light bulb with me, some, and it could be really helpful for students or even uh, young, young alumni that have recently been through the workshop. You talked about uh, pitching um a story and, you know, to National Geographic or could be to anyone uh, when it comes to pitching successfully and, and being able to pursue something. Is there any kind of tip that you can share that uh, you've noticed that it's something that you continually put into uh, current or in, in potentially future pitches to help you get um, the, the jobs um, or potentially other opportunities that might become available? Yeah, I think I'm still trying to figure out how to do successful pitching. But, <laughs> I'm um, sure we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, that, mm -hmm. but, you know, I think that, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still super, super new um, at, at all of this. So giving advice to people who are trying to, to come up always you know, feels a little awkward. But, you know, for me, um, it was trying to find something that I knew a lot about. Um, so that I already had lots of connections. You know, I think probably the hardest thing for any kind of story is getting access. So if you're just starting, um, you know, you have your own personal network. Everybody's an expert in something, you know, even if it's, you know, maybe like making sandwiches or selling shoes or, or whatever else, all of those can be interesting visual stories that can show that you 
can make compelling, you know, visual stories about, about something that you know a lot about. And it's a way to branch out. You know, you can always use it as a way of showing other people like, hey, you know, like I really nerded out about uh, park benches or something. And it's just something that you know a lot about, something that you can go out and shoot and reshoot and reshoot and, until you're really good at it and then take that and show it to people. You know, I think a lot of people are always always like, well, you know, I, I want to get into photojournalism, but like I can't afford a plane ticket to Africa and, you know, everything else. It was like, that's just not where most people start anymore. Um, mm -hmm. Most people are starting in their backyards. And so with that and with your photography, do you have any... Uh, current projects you're working on or is there any kind of big projects that you're focused on for the future? Yeah, I've got a couple, um, you know, I'm continuing my long-term projects on Florida Springs. So um, I got a storytelling grant from the National Geographic Society this year to um, really start working on that. Um, also have some funding from the Florida Fish and Wildlife Foundation, uh, Fish and Wildlife Foundation of Florida to um, work with them on spring. So one of the things that I think is, is really important is being able to, uh, when you're working on environmental stories, be able to showcase the work of organizations and foundations that are out there um, trying to make a difference. Um, so, you know, being able to partner, you know, with organizations like that, I think for, for me personally is, is kind of super important. Um, and then I'm also continuing my work with manatees. I've kind of expanded out from just working on Florida's manatees to working on sirenia, which is the whole group of organisms that include the uh, three different species of manatees and dugongs. So mm -hmm. there, um, I've got another, working on a couple of National Geographic Society projects. One of them was in the Amazon, uh, photographing some biologists who are studying Amazonian manatees. So it's in oh, Peru wow. and Brazil, uh, you know, running around in the Amazon trying to photograph Manatees down there, it's uh, super challenging. Uh, they're hunted, um, so they're very, very skittish, and they're 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 ghosts. They're you talk to the biologists who've been studying the manatees, and they see them maybe a couple times in their entire career. Um, I'm going to be doing another project in West Africa with African manatees starting in December. Uh, kind of similar problems uh, over there. That project's super neat for me because it also involves springs. So on that project, they get to be a spring scientist and also a documentary photographer. That's awesome. And so as, as, do you find it? It's becoming, um, is it, I guess, does it go hand in hand now, your experience with geology uh, and photography? Or are you starting to see as you get these other opportunities that they separate some? Or do you feel like it's always going to meld uh, into, um, you know, projects that you choose or focus on or even you contribute to? Uh, you know, it's kind of a, a mix of all of them. I, you know, I, some of the stories I work on, uh, you know, there's, there's this real strong connection to, you know, my geology background. And then other ones, you know, like Amazonian manatees, um, that didn't really draw on any of my geology background at all. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, for me, one of the things that's really important moving forward was, you know, I spent 10 or 15 years of my life, you know, working on hardcore science. And, you know, I think that going forward, um, you know, storytelling and drawing on my science background and, and expertise to try to uh, illustrate and occasionally write stories um, that I think would be challenging for people that don't have a real strong science background to tackle is kind of where I want to be going, um, you know, over the next half of my career. So. And have you befriended any other uh, photographer scientists out there as well uh, as you've been on, on all these adventures and exploring and different things? Um, 
that pursue um, like you? Because I've had some friends that uh, were doctors in the Air Force, and then they've actually gotten out, and then they've become full-time photographers. And it's always interesting to me uh, when I see a pattern from, again, these uh, health professions, uh, these professionals that are, you know, saving people's lives or taking care of people. And then um, really, you know, it's about connecting. It's connecting in a different way, uh, connecting, you know, from the person that they're serving in their office to connecting with the lens and the camera and with the subject and whatever they're passionate. And I know one of them are more like landscape and mother nature, but again, those beautiful connections you can make with that. Um, and then others are more with people and commercial work. Uh, but for you, have you seen a pattern with that yourself? Have you, as you've been out there? You know, I haven't, um, I haven't personally got to meet huge numbers of scientists who are also photographers. Um, there are a handful of people, but, you know, for the most part, typically um, everyone tends to be kind of surprised. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I think they, I, one of the things that I've noticed since I've started, uh, you know, trying to photograph a lot more um, is that it's rewired my brain. Um, it sounds dumb, uh, but it's completely changed the way that like I think and, and feel about things like I've gone from being like more analytical to um, just having more empathy in general. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I think, I think if I hadn't made that kind of, you know, career shift, um, I probably would have just laughed if somebody told me that that was uh, like a thing. But I really do mm -hmm. think that people that work in different types of fields just think differently uh, because it requires different parts of your your brain and your emotions. True. And so and uh, with that and your experience with the, the workshop and obviously it's expanded to projects outside of of going to the workshop itself. But what is uh, the Eddie Adams workshop meant to you? You know, for me, like I, you know, the, the Eddie Adams workshop was really the first opportunity that I had to get a photo network. You know, I have this amazing science network, uh, but I, other than like one or two photographers that were covering some of the research that I was doing, I, I didn't have anybody to go to, to be like, hey, I'm trying to do X or, or Y, or, you know, I was like, how do I write a pitch, <laughs> you know? Um, so, you know, for me, the Eddie Adams workshop was my first time to really get a glimpse at the inner workings of the photo industry and the networking opportunities that I got from there are kind of directly what ended up leading to me getting to shoot the manatee story. So, you know, Erica Larson, um, was our, I was on one of the virtual Eddie Adams uh, cohorts mm -hmm. during COVID. Um, so I didn't actually really get to meet very many people in person. A couple people from my cohort came in. I taught them how to scuba dive, which was super cool. It was my first that time to hang out with photographers. <laughs> and, um, you know, but, uh, you know, Erica Larson was one of the team leaders. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't get to talk with her very much uh, during the meeting. But, you know, later I found out that she was photographing a story about manatees in Florida. So I just sent her an email. I was like, hey, I was in the Eddie Adams workshop. Sorry, we didn't get a chance to meet. I live in Florida. I've been working on manatees for a long time. If there's anything I can do to help you with your story, I'd love to, you know, chat and maybe learn a little bit more about the industry. And, you know, a couple of days later, I, you know, got an email inviting me to a meeting with an editor to talk about what it was that I'd been doing with, with manatees and it led to an assignment. That's really cool. And that's something, again, I've, I've seen as a pattern and just even myself being able to work uh, with Eddie Adams and, and run the social media and connect with so many amazing, talented photographers that are we're just all connected through one or through one thing, the workshop itself and the pattern that I see that we all just truly care 
uh, about the craft and then we care about those that are so passionate about the craft that we want really everyone to succeed. Uh, and whether it's giving them an opportunity or again, like asking for some advice and, and insight on help improving potentially their own personal project or even some techniques, uh, it always uh, amazes me, which it probably shouldn't by now, but it always amazes me how giving uh, this community is. And even in your situation, but going through the, the virtual workshop, because with COVID shutting everything down and not having that opportunity to, to go see everyone in person, to be able to still connect just by attending virtually uh, and still have the same opportunities that those that when they go in in person and connect, uh, you know, face to face, to me, it, it it's very encouraging to hear um, that regardless of however the workshop is run, that there's still the benefit of attending uh, and, and building that professional network to help you succeed. So that's, that's really super neat. And um, have you been able to connect with uh, or have you stayed in connection with anyone uh, on your team or any of your team leaders um, throughout the process? Have they uh, been able to give you kudos when they see your achievements and projects that you've been working on? Yeah, I stay in touch with a lot of people from my team and um, people that were on other teams as well. You know, we had really super late night Zoom sessions, kind of like Zoom meet and greets and cocktail mixers and stuff that would run until three o'clock in the morning sometimes. So um, you know, a lot of us are still messaging each other on Instagram or text messages or whatever else. And, you know, it's just kind of a, it's neat. Like, you know, we didn't have that in-person community, but since then, a lot of us have been able to meet up at like storytelling workshops at National Geographic Society and, um, and other places. So it's been, it's, it's neat to be part of a, a family. And I know we've been chatting for a while, but I do have one final question for you before we go. <laughs> Uh, do you have a favorite photo? I know this is something that uh, people always ask, whether, you know, my mom or my grandma's asked me or even have young students come like, do you have a favorite photo? And um, it, for me, it's, it wouldn't even necessarily be something that I uh, didn't take myself. It could be something that you were inspired by, or again, it could be something you shot that you're really proud of because of what it's meant. But do you have, do you have a favorite photo? Um, I have two favorite pictures okay. for different reasons. Um, it's like one of, one of my favorite photographs is um, Nick Nichols has this picture of a chimpanzee who's just reaching out and touching the forehead of Jane Goodall. And it's uh, probably like one of the most powerful photographs that I've seen of wildlife connecting with people. And, you know, I think a lot of times we think about those connections that we have with our pets, um, you know, but we don't really see those same types of connections with animals that aren't our pets. And I, I think that that picture just kind of bridges um, that gulf really nicely. Um, there's another photo that, that I like for a totally different reason. Uh, it's one of Bill Allard's and it's a photograph of the Eiffel Tower. And it's a picture of the Eiffel Tower through like, a, um, like the window of a ferry. He's like riding around on this boat and there are like reflections everywhere and there are raindrops everywhere. And it's like somebody just took colors and splashed them like all the way across the slide. Yeah. And I always think of that picture because like the Eiffel Tower is probably one of the single most photographed objects in the world. Mm -hmm. And to look at it that way, I mean, like that, that photograph to me is just like, you can take an amazing original photograph of something that's like almost a visual cliche. And it's just like, that photograph has always challenged me to think about different ways to look at the world. No, that's incredible. That's really cool. And that's something that I know my mentors have really uh, ingrained into me. And I try to uh, 
ingrained in and inspiring our young military photographers that we have that I that I'm responsible for is uh try to share with them that we're professionals. And so as much as technology has made it to where everyone has access to a camera now, our phones all take incredible photos, the di a difference between us and the rest of the Air Force and the airmen around us is that we're responsible for being able to capture and tell the story in a way uh, that they don't see it, that they could walk past this bush a hundred times, but you could show them this picture that's from this bush and and they would be amazed or, or shocked, or they wouldn't even be aware it's from that same location because it's our responsibility to be able to see that as storytellers and artists and, and have that at least kind of thought, put that kind of thought when we approach and uh, taking the pictures. And again, it's not, it's more easy said than done. Like I get it, um, but it's something to help them try to take into account is when they're going to take that picture to help them from being lazy. Like, how can I take this in a way to where it's been shot like a graduation or promotion or retirement ceremony has been shot a thousand times a billion times throughout history um, but how can I shoot this one in a way to where it's different and I can get people to care uh, and so that it's great to hear uh, something like that like has inspired you and it's uh, left an impression on you and um, no that I think that's that's really great for I think anyone to take away um, is is uh, just don't just walk in. You may have seen it a billion times, but there's an opportunity to to share something different um, if right place, right time, right moment, and it could be there for you. And so, uh, one final thing before we go: Do you have any kind of parting wisdom you'd like to share uh, to the community or even potential uh, future applicants to the workshop uh, that you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, just apply. Like, if you're even remotely interested, just apply and keep applying. I mean, you you know don't get to attend any of the programs that you don't apply to. So, you know. That's, um, simple yeah you know like I said, it took me two or three times myself so uh but again no thank you thank you so much for your time thank you so much for sharing uh, everything with us uh it was incredible uh i learned a lot and i'm definitely going to keep tabs on everything that you're working on and keep in touch with you but again thank you thank you for today hey thanks thanks chris really appreciate you uh interviewing me and it's great to catch up Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Long Roll Podcast. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, it would mean the world to us. If you haven't already, go ahead and click subscribe, share with a friend and family, and let them know that they can find this on any platform that they prefer. Again, thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next episode.